Hello. How you doing? Hope you're okay. Um, I want to tell you about something that I did at the very start of lockdown that I think helps us think about the psalm we're going to think about today. Um, and at the very start of lockdown in March, I binged, it's the only word for it, I binged on the Netflix documentary, The Last Dance. If you don't know what The Last Dance is, it's a 10-part documentary about the career of the basketballer Michael Jordan. And it's particularly about his final season, his last dance, playing for the Chicago Bulls in 97 and 98. Now, I'm not a massive basketball fan, but this documentary gripped me. I absolutely loved it. It was a brilliantly made documentary about a brilliant story. And it was great. But if, if you know me at all, you know that I'm fairly prone to obsession. So I ended up mentioning it to everyone I spoke to at the time. We had Jamie's brother living with us during those weeks. And it became a bit of a running joke that I would mention The Last Dance in any situation where it could even possibly be slightly relevant. Like If you were unlucky to speak to me at that time, you probably heard me going on about it too. But why did I go on about it quite so much? Well, the truth is because I thought it was brilliant. And I wanted people to know about it and enjoy it with me. To share that enjoyment that I had and talk about it with other people. Maybe you're like that. I don't know what will get you that excited. Maybe it's an album or a film or a book or a new recipe or an author or a game or some exercise, whatever it is. Do you ever get that enthusiastic about something that you just want to share it with anyone and everyone you can? The writer C.S. Lewis spots the human tendency to do that and he says this about it. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. He goes on to say, it's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, or to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then have to keep silent because the people you care for it, you're with, care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch, or to hear a good joke, and to find no one to share it with. See, when we enjoy something, we love to talk about it and share it with people. It's what we do because that sharing of it completes the joy. So what is it you love to talk about? If someone spent any time with you, what would they know that you were passionate about? If all the words that you spoke outside of work were written down, what would be the most common thing that you spoke about? Well, as we begin looking at Psalm 92, just think about that as we listen to it. We don't know who the writer was, but we know what their enthusiasm really is. See if you can spot it in the reading now. Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the work of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord! How profound your thoughts! The senseless man does not know, fools do not understand, that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be forever destroyed. But you, O Lord, are exalted forever. For surely your enemies, O Lord, surely your enemies will perish, all evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured upon me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. 
Did you spot it? Can you tell what they're enthusiastic about? You can see that by what they repeat the most. And the most repeated word in this psalm is the word Lord. This That special name that God's people had for their faithful, promise-keeping God. See, whoever wrote this, they passionately loved the Lord their God. And they were a fantastic poet. This poem is written in such a beautiful way that we start at the either end of the poem and work towards the crescendo of the poem right in the middle. I've not maybe explained that well, and hopefully as we get stuck into it, we'll see what I mean. Because the first thing the psalmist is going to draw our attention to is that it's good for God's people to praise him together. It's good for God's people to praise him together. We see that in verses 1 to 5 and then verses 10 to 15. I mean, just look at how the psalmist begins this psalm. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. Now, one of the weird things about the way we use language is how that overusing words can reduce the effect of them. So uh, the word awesome we use it to describe all kinds of things, don't we? Like gigs and burgers and all sorts of stuff. But that then reduces the word awesome when we need to use it for something that really is awesome. And I think we get that same kind of thing with the word good here in verse 1. It is good to praise the Lord. Well, that's nice. Yes, good. But this word good doesn't just mean that's a fine thing to do. It means it is the best thing we can do. It's using the word good the way God uses it in the creation account in Genesis. It's fantastic. It is brilliant. It is the closest thing to heaven we can do. The psalmist is saying that it is the best thing for us to proclaim God's love and his faithfulness together. If you look just above verse 1, you'll see that this psalm was specifically written for the Sabbath day, the day that God's people rested from all of their work and all of their other activities, and they focused instead on praising and worshipping God together. See, the psalmist is talking about how brilliant and good it is for us to praise God together. We're not designed to be solo worshippers of God existing on our own. It is way better for us to praise God together. Now, that's really hard to hear at the moment, isn't it? If you're watching this just after I record it, we haven't been able to meet together since March the 15th, which is five months ago. That's a long time. And we've been forced to have to live on YouTube videos and meeting on Zoom, and it's it's just no decent substitute for being together. And to cap it all off at the moment, there's no idea of when we will be able to meet together. And when we do, we probably won't be able to do most of those things that we love to do. We won't be able to sing together or even speak to each other across family groups or hang around together. So proclaiming God's love and faithfulness to each other is going to be really difficult for us to do. And that right now should make us feel a bit sad. Because if you feel like this psalmist, then reading this psalm could just make us feel awful. Because we can't do what we've been made to do, which is to meet together. We're like a fish that can't swim or an eagle that can't fly. This should hurt us and frustrate us. To not be able to meet together, to use a psalmist illustration in verses 12 to 14, means that we're like a tree that hasn't got any water and a tree that can't produce fruit. Or to use a New Testament picture, a Christian forced to be on their own is like a hand without a body or an eye without a head. But hearing all that, 
it might challenge some of us because it's possible that some of us have actually preferred and enjoyed the changes that COVID's caused. I mean, having the sermon on YouTube is meant we can watch it when we want. So we're not inconvenienced by having to go to church on a Sunday. And if we don't go onto the Zoom call, then we're not going to be called out on it in the same way we would if it was meeting in real church because people won't notice. And in fact, church services on a Sunday have pretty much just got in the way of the other stuff we'd really rather be doing with our weekends. YouTube sermons mean I can have it on in the background while I do other stuff that I enjoy more. Well, if that's how you're feeling, the, the challenge with this psalm is it's just not going to ring true with you. But in fact, as you read the Bible, the experience of God's people isn't going to ring true with you. Because to push it further, verse 2 makes it clear that God's people love to give over not just a service, but a whole day to praising God together with his people. The way he says morning and night in that verse is a way of bookending the day to represent all of it, not just the convenient bits of a day that we can move on from to get on with other activities. This is a challenge for us. Is this something that we felt before? And is this something we're excited to do when we can in the future? Or will meeting together when we can finally do it just get in the way of having the fun we really want? But this psalmist is trying to tell us meeting together as Christians is good for us. But why? In what way is it good for us? Well, this psalm says it's got two effects, really. It's got a personal individual effect and it's got a corporate altogether effect. So personally, it gives us a better perspective on things. Have a look at verse four. When the psalmist sings praises to God in the first three verses, what happens? For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. See, whatever else this psalmist had been feeling, maybe grumpy or angry or bitter or discouraged, when they're encouraged to think about God and who he is and what he's done by a family of believers all doing it together, well, it refocuses their own personal perspective. They're reminded of all that God has done for them and that fuels in them joy and gladness. It doesn't necessarily change their situation. Their life may still be pretty rubbish, but it changes them and their view of it all because it focuses their attention on God rather than on their own situation. And that has even more effects. Look at verse 10. The picture of the ox's horn is the psalmist's poetic way of saying that praising God with his people re-strengthens them. And the fine oils imagery means that it refreshes him. It's like having a spa and being cleansed and made to feel better. It helps him have eyes to see and ears to hear what's really going on around in verse 11 so he can see with certainty the ultimate defeat of all those things that are getting at him and bringing him down even if he or she doesn't ever get to see it with his own physical eyes. You see, being with God's people, praising him on the Lord's day is good for us. It is the best thing we can do personally. The real challenge is, do we believe that? Have we made trusting the Lord into just this purely personal relationship that church and other Christians get in the way of? Or do we really believe what the psalmist is telling us is true, that that would affect the way we behave and hardly anything would stop us from getting to church to be with God's people, praising his name. And in fact, that wouldn't be enough. And it isn't just good for us personally. It's good for all of us together as a local church. Look at verse 12. The righteous, plural, will flourish like a palm tree, like a cedar of Lebanon, just big, strong, healthy trees. 
And why will they do that? Well, the psalmist tells us in verse 13, because they're planted in the house of the Lord, in the courts of our God together, they will flourish. You see, this psalm tells us that when meeting together becomes important and a priority to all of us, we all benefit. Everyone flourishes. Everyone goes strong and healthy like those trees. And this flourishing will keep on going. These people of God are still going to bear fruit in old age and remain fresh and green, even when they might not look like it. And they're going to keep believing and declaring what they've been saying all along in verse 15. The Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. The challenge is, do we believe this? Do we believe this about the opportunities we do have to meet together as churches? Yes, some things are different now this side of the cross. The psalmist Sabbath day was the Saturday and ours is a Sunday. But read through the book of Acts and see just how much the attitude of the church in that book mirrors Psalm 92. And you'll see that they're always together. They love to be together. It is good for them to be together, not just on Sundays. They love it. Is this how we feel about meeting together as a church? Is being together as a church when we're able something we prioritise? Is it something we delight in? Is it something we invest in and allow others to invest in us? Or is it something that's an inconvenience that we get through to do what we really want to do with our time? If that is our attitude, then this psalm is calling us to repent of that and turn away from that and ask for forgiveness for that. It is so good for God's people to praise him together. Really good for everyone. How does the way we treated our Sundays in the past demonstrate that? And how should it change the way we treat Sundays in the future? It's good for God's people to praise him together. But it's particularly good when you compare it with how this psalm describes people who don't share this view. So let's see, secondly, and much more briefly, it's not good to reject the Lord. It's not good to reject the Lord. We see that in verses 6, 7 and 9. See, if it's good for God's people to praise him, then the next section takes a sharp contrast with all of that. Just listen to these verses. Senseless people do not know Fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You see, the psalmist looks around at the world in verses 4 and 5 and they praise God. They look at everything around them and they're blown away by the greatness and the faithfulness and the love of God. But they know that that's not the way everyone responds when they look around. Other people look at the world around and the way it functions and they conclude essentially there is no God. That it's every man for himself. They see wicked people, people who reject God, springing up everywhere like grass. And they say evildoers, people who reject God, flourishing. And they think, well, then there can't be a God. There's no heaven. There's no hell. John Lennon was right. Everyone should just live for today because that's all there is. Maybe that's the way you're thinking watching this. Perhaps you're someone that's always been sceptical about the claims of a creator who rules over all. Your experience of life and your observations around you have made you think this world is just senseless and violent. If there was a God, he left us alone a long time ago. Look at the people who succeed and who flourish the most. If there was a God, it'd be the other way round. They wouldn't succeed. People like us would. Us good people. Perhaps you think life's a bit like a game of Monopoly. 
you've ever played Monopoly properly? Now, to win at Monopoly, you've got to be ruthless. You've got to buy quick and then fleece everyone you're playing with without mercy. I heard a story very recently, I can't remember who said it, so apologies if it was you, about someone saying that when they were about 13, they played their nan at Monopoly and she just destroyed them. She took them apart, penny by penny, and won. So he made it his mission to beat her at Monopoly one day. So that summer, he played anyone and everyone he could, and he just practiced playing Monopoly as much as he could until he got better and better and better, until he eventually went round to his nans and asked her for a game of Monopoly. And he was ruthless. He destroyed her, took all of her money, and at the end she says to him, well done, you've learned the first lesson, how to win at Monopoly, and he felt good. But then she said to him, now for the last lesson and the most important. When the game's over, whether you win or lose, the money all goes back in the box. It's the same point the psalmist is making here. If you think that only the ruthless, unscrupulous people succeed, so the key, so the key to succeeding yourself is to be like them, you've missed the point. You've read the information incorrectly. If you look around at the world and think there's no meaning and there's no lesson to learn about God from it all except that he's long gone, well, the psalmist says you're stupid. Now, it's not a very PC word, but that's what that word at the start of verse 6, senseless, should be translated as really stupid. Other translations do say that. The person writing this psalm says that if you look around and see the world as it is and conclude that nice guys finish last, so just live as you please, then you're being stupid. You've come to the most ridiculous conclusion because you've forgotten to read the most important statistic. One out of one people die. See, look around you. They might seem to win, but at the end of their lives, all their money goes back in the box. And then what? Well, the psalmist gives us hints here. He says, then it's only worse ahead. Look at verse nine. Surely your enemies, Lord, he repeats this to be clear who these people really are. Surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. If you've concluded that there is no God, no God, then the Bible says you're not just naively wrong or mistaken. The Bible says you're an enemy of God. In fact, like this psalm, it says there are only two types of people. Those who love to praise God and those who are his enemies. The question is, which are you? I mean, we've seen how well it goes for those who praise God even if that's only eventually. Look, just read verses 10 to 15 again. But it doesn't go so well for those who don't in verse 9. So where are you today? Are you one of these righteous people who will praise God and will, God and will flourish forever? Or are you one of his enemies who might flourish for a bit, but will eventually be destroyed? Those are the only two options. There's no sitting on the fence with God. You're either enemy or family. If you are a Christian today, then I want to encourage you, this life is as bad as it gets. And it can get pretty bad. Like there may well be people who oppose you and who are against you. This life might be hard and people who hate you and what you believe might prosper and seem to have more success, more money, more comfort, more pleasure, whatever. But if you're a Christian, this life is as bad as it gets. Ahead is only better and better and better. 
Verses 10 to 15 are beautiful hints of what heaven and eternity are going to be like. Paul says it this way in Romans that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. He's saying that heaven and eternity make any suffering, anything we have to give up and go through now, makes it completely worth it. But this psalm also reminds us that if you're not a Christian watching this, if you're an enemy of God, then this life is as good as it gets. And it is a brief sneeze of time. If you're not a Christian, this life is as good as it gets. And the sad news you need to hear now is that ahead is only much worse. Much, much worse. Because when God scatters and when God causes you to perish, like verse 9 talks about, well, the Bible says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, it is not good to reject the Lord. And by not praising him, you are rejecting him. But why? Why? Why is it so good for God's people to praise him together? And why is it so bad to reject the Lord? Well, right at the centre of this psalm, the most important line that the whole psalm has been pointing up to tells us in verse 8, But you, Lord, are forever exalted. God is forever exalted. Now, that word exalt, we don't really use it very often. Um, what it means is to lift up. So uh, the famous pictures after England won the Football World Cup in 1966 with the captain Bobby Moore being lifted up on people's shoulders. They are lifting him up. They are exalting him to show how brilliant they think he is in that moment. To go back to the last dance, Michael Jordan was very often lifted up and exalted by the people who loved him and adored him. But God isn't like a footballer or a basketballer who'll reach his peak and then fade away. He isn't like a pop star who becomes a next big thing only to, to be replaced by the next big thing. He isn't even a king who rules over all well until they die and then might be remembered fondly. No, this God is forever exalted. He's always at his peak. Every day is his heyday. Nothing can better him. Nothing can rival him. Nothing can outlast him. He is forever and will be exalted, lifted up, celebrated for who he is, for every second that he is. And he's exalted now when his people come together and praise him. So we're joining in with the eternity of exalting of God there's going to be. See, when Christians gather to praise their God despite every other circumstance of life, that shows to the world around that this God is better than anything else this life can offer. Praising God is better than any hobby or activity or any other way we could be spending our time. Getting out of bed on a Sunday morning or leaving our house on a Sunday afternoon when we're relaxed and comfortable and a bit sleepy shows that instead of our own comfort, meeting with God's people is better. And it is a madness to a world around that doesn't know him. But it also displays to them how brilliant we think this God is. It exalts him. But God is also exalted when he judges his enemies. When those in rebellion against him, their good, faithful, loving king, are punished for their rebellion. He's exalted when he scatters and when he makes perish those who oppose him and reject him. When people who think they're fine without him are proved how wrong they are. But what kind of God has any right to judge at all? And what kind of God deserves to be praised by his people at all? 
Well, the answer is a God who comes to earth in the person of his son, Jesus. The God who taught there and then and demonstrated again and again how faithful and loving God is towards people who don't deserve it. Who taught again and again how God's enemies will seem like they're going to triumph, but it will not last. And then ultimately a God who was exalted, who was lifted up as a man, but not how we might expect. Oh, he was lifted up when he was hung naked and despised on a Roman cross in front of a crowd baying for his blood, condemned as a criminal and sentenced to a rebel's death. And as he was exalted, lifted up on that cross, he took the full weight of judgment for evildoers and his enemies, praying for their forgiveness even as they killed him. He was lifted up. He was exalted. And then he was brought back down and laid in a tomb. And then he was exalted again to earth and he's been exalted again to heaven where he reigns as the ultimate king of king and lords of laws. But he was raised up on the cross, taking all of our punishment we deserve for our own rebellion, our wickedness, for our own enmity with God. And he did it so that people like you and me who deserve the punishment of rebels, of enemies, who deserve the scattering this psalm speaks about, can instead be people who sing about and shout about his faithfulness and his love together. If you're not yet a Christian watching this, then can I ask you why not? What's stopping you? The truth is you've looked around at the world and come to the, long, the wrong conclusion. Instead, come and see the truth about this God in his word, the God who knows you deserve judgment and punishment and instead exalts his own son by punishing him in your place and who is therefore loving towards you, calling you to forgiveness and calling you to trust that he is faithful to his word when he promises to forgive all of our rebellion and rejection of him. He is exalted forever in his forgiveness and his judgment. So why not be part of the group that prays him now for his infinite love and forgiveness? instead of the group who perish and are scattered. And if you're a Christian watching this, let's remind ourselves of these truths that when we meet together as churches, when we praise them with other people, we're just joining in with what we're going to be doing in eternity anyway. It is good for us to do this. Let's encourage each other with this truth. And then let's eagerly look forward to meeting with God's people to praise him together. What priority does doing that take for you? How could you encourage yourself and others to prioritise it more when we're finally allowed to meet together. How can we do little glimpses of this in smaller pockets now? How can we exalt the Lord with others, even during this frustrating time? Because the results of doing it are massive, flourishing and bearing fruit right on into eternity. It is the best thing we can be doing this side of death. Psalm 92 is a wonderful reminder and encouragement to us that it is good to praise God together and it is not good to reject the Lord because he will be exalted forever. So why not start doing that now? Mm -hmm.